0: Alright. If you got your Bibles, open them up. We're gonna be in Psalm 51 tonight. Talk a little bit about sin and repentance. So see if this is a if this is a struggle, a reality that you can relate to. So objective reality. How many of you online in here are parents? Alright. How many of you wish you weren't? No, it's another. another. So here's the objective reality. Right? We know that as parents, our job is to raise adults eventually. Correct? Our goal is to raise them to be healthy, functioning adults who will eventually leave our house. Would we agree that we know that that is an objective reality? Yes? All right. Never intended for them to live in the basement. Right? The subjective reality is this. How many of you as parents struggled when the objective reality came true and they left you alone and you were by yourself? How many of you struggled subjectively with that reality? Okay, six of us care about our children. What is wrong with the rest of you people, right? Listen, I don't know about you, but when my kids got to an age of 18, they finally became semi-likable. And then the first thing they wanted to do was leave, right? And you knew that objectively you were accomplishing the goal, but subjectively, some of us struggled with that, right? How about with money? Objectively, let's see if we agree on this, that we all agree that spending more money than we make objectively is bad. Do we agree on that? Yes or no, right? But subjectively, down in the struggle of our emotions and feelings, The struggle is sometimes to not buy that thing that we know we can't afford, but we buy it and we go in debt anyway. Is that a subjective struggle you can relate to? Yeah. How about relationships? Objectively, we see the red flags. Our friends tell us about the red flags. We know they're there. But subjectively in the struggle, we fight with our own insecurities, our fear of being alone, Right, That need of immediate gratification. And so even though objectively we know there are a million red flags, we ignore them in our subjective struggle. Yes or no? Anybody relate to that? Yeah. I mean, that constant struggle of knowing the objective truth, right, and yet having a subjective reality of struggle is something that I think all of us, right, in here online can relate to. Would you agree with that? Yes or no? I just picked money parenting relationships, there are a million of these things, right? Objectively, I know that the Chicago Bears stink. They're terrible. They're just terrible, right? They've literally won four games, okay? Just one, right? Just one, they're just terrible. Subjectively, subjectively, I can't make myself not waste three and a half hours watching their putrid example of football. Right? Because even though objectively I know they're terrible and they're not going to make the playoffs, I can't wait for them to come back on so I can watch them. Because the reality is that no matter what the topic is, you pick it. We often know a subjective or an objective truth, but living out in Our subjective reality sometimes is a struggle for all of us. And that struggle, that familiar struggle of objective reality versus subjective reality is very. Listen, that familiar struggle is evident when it comes to sin and it comes to repentance. And nowhere in scripture is it as evident as it is when it comes to David and his sin with Bathsheba. And so we're going to talk about that. Probably over the next two weeks, but tonight we're going to tackle the objective reality when it comes to sin and repentance. Now listen, we're going to discuss it in context of David's sin. David's sin was with Bathsheba. David's sin was the sin of adultery, of lying, of murder. He covered as many as the Ten Commandments as he could, right? But... We're gonna talk about it in that context, but we're gonna talk about it in a principle that applies to all sin and all repentance. Here's our jumping off verse, right? Hebrews 2, 17 and 18 says, "'For this reason Jesus had to be made like his brothers "'in what?' "'Every way.'" Jesus made like us in every way. Why? So then order that he might become merciful and faithful as a high priest in service to God. Listen, you can't, you're never going to get any help in, listen, if Jesus is like us in every way, one of the things that I hope for is that in doing so, he becomes compassionate for me as a person. Because when people approach you and say they love you, but they have no mercy and no compassion and no pity on you, that relationship is limited to what it's going to be. Yes? I don't know about you, but I want mercy. Because I don't know what you're like, but I'm a flawed human being. I have issues. I have serious Brokenness in my life, as you do too. Jesus developed mercy so he could become faithful to his service to God. And what was that service? That he might make atonement for the sins of the people. There was no way Jesus was going to ever lay down his life for you and me without mercy. Because I don't know what sins are contained in this room, but I know they can pale in comparison to the sins contained online. Can we agree? No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding, I'm kidding, right? But we all know that when it comes to our life and the multitude of the things that we think and the things that we say and the things that we do, if there's not mercy given to us in our in our subjective struggle of life on this earth, we're never gonna have friends. You can't truly be a friend to somebody if you have no mercy for that person. And Jesus was asked, was asked to lay down his life for us how did he do it because he became merciful he understood your struggle first and foremost and then he was able to be faithful in his duty and service to god because jesus himself suffered while he was here while he was living out this life right this life in fire by trial or trial by fire jesus was being tempted tried the way we are, he is able to help those who are being tempted. I don't know about you, but those two verses mean the world to me. Can somebody say amen? Man, those are encouraging verses because so often the Jesus that's preached from pulpits and the God that's talked about in pulpits is not a God or a Savior who can relate to you. Who cannot, who can't get, Why? why would you do such a stupid thing? is often our response to people. And Jesus' response to us is always that of mercy, that of faithfulness to God because of his mercy. And so that's why we are in the Psalms because Jesus was made like us in every way. He can relate to us down here. And you and I are complicated people at some level, because somehow our brain is high hardwired with that part of our brain that, right, that part of our brain that creates emotions, that has feelings. For some reason, God wired us to where that's also the decision making part of our brain, which makes no sense to me why you would give decision making to a part of a brain that is so emotionally driven because everybody online, everybody in here has made an emotional decision that they have regretted. Yes or no, right? It's crazy. And then you add the fact that we're broken and our emotions are broken. Sometimes our decisions, they're very broken too. And yet somehow in the midst of all of that, that's the way God hard, hardwired us to act. I don't know about you, but because of that, I, I, I need a savior that's going to relate to me. Because there's going to be times I'm going to have to go to Jesus and go, man, I'm really sorry. Right? I, I don't have an explanation as to why that happened or why I did that. And if my savior isn't relatable to that, can't relate to that, I have no hope. I mean, how many people do you figure quit going to church in a season of sin? They just quit going to church in a season of sin. And part of the reason they do it isn't just because of shame and guilt. It's because they don't, do not believe that they have a savior who could understand even, can understand them even in their failures. And so we just disconnect until what? Until we get it all fixed. Well, that's a great idea, but sometimes that might take three months, six months, a year. For me, it took seven. I graduated from Bible college with a degree in understanding the Bible, and it took me seven years to understand that I have a Savior who I could have talked to the whole time. And yet I just stayed away. There's lots and lots of people that feel that way. I want you to understand that Jesus was made like us in every single way. Why? Because he needed to be merciful so he could be faithful. Because what God was asking was for him to lay down his life for you and for me. Aren't you grateful that we have a merciful and faithful high priest? Somebody say amen. All right. Why don't you guys stand with me? Let's read Psalm 51. We're going to read several verses here just so you can get a feel for David. All right. This is David's response, right, to his sin with Bathsheba, right? And here's his response. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are proved right when you speak. And justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time that my mother conceived me. Surely you do desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost places. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. He goes on to say, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed Rejoice! Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then... He says, I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God. The God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it, and you do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. He says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. And a contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. And all of God's people said, amen. amen. What a psalm, right? David's psalm and the brokenness of his sin. So let's talk about the objective reality. What we can know as truth. And for some of you, this might feel a little rehashed. But my guess is, for all of us, it's something that we need to be familiar with. So let's read, let's read the account of David's sin. Right? This is the topic of his psalm, right? So this is David, right? In Second Samuel chapter 11, it says, In the spring, at the time when the kings went off to war, right, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites, besieged Rabah. David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed, walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now, whether or not that was consensual, whether or not that was forced, we don't know. We simply know he was the king and she wasn't. And so when he beckoned her, she came, right? She had purified herself from her uncleanness, right? Then she went back home. The woman conceived. She sent word to David sometime later saying, I am pregnant. David sent this word to Joab, who was the commander of his army. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came, David asked him, How Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace with all his master servants and did not go into his house. When David was told Uriah didn't go home, he asked him, Haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, he said. And my master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. Honorable man, yes or no? Unbelievably honorable. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. So David said, stay here one more day. Tomorrow I will send you back. Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with the king. And David made him drunk. Honorable man, David, yes or no? No. In the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat amongst his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote... Put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw. And here's the thing. Uriah had the letter. He didn't open it. Honorable man, yes or no? Unbelievable. So then he tells, this is David's letter to, to Joab. Once he's in the front, withdraw from him so he'll be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. It goes on to say, right? When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Pretty gruesome. Right? Unbelievably gruesome behavior for a man that Paul eventually describes in the book of Acts as a man after God's own heart. I mean, serious. Serious. I mean, the adultery thing is only magnified because of the lying. I mean, look at the underhanded depths that David went to to cover up his sin with Bathsheba. I mean, he tried, he didn't try, he got the man drunk and hoping that he would go home and sleep with his wife. And when that didn't work, he had him killed. I mean, his sin was, his sin was unbelievable in its scope and its context, right? All of us, we can all feel it, right? We can all feel how horrific what David did was. Yes or no? That was terrible, right? Now listen to the very next chapter when Nathan, his friend, shows up. Chapter 12 of Samuel says, Nathan, the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, to David, this is what Nathan said. There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no mercy, no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are this man. This is what the Lord says. The God of Israel says, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all of this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what's evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite. With the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. And then listen to what the Lord says out of your own household i'm going to bring calamity upon you before your very eyes i will take your wives i will give them to the one who is close to you and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight had no idea that would eventually be his son you did it in secret but i will but i will do this thing in broad daylight before all of israel and david said to nathan i have sinned against the lord and nathan replied Listen to this, everybody online, everybody here, read this last line with me. The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Instead, because by doing this, you've made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt. The son that's born to you will die. What a story, right? It's just a mess. It's crazy. But that's David's story, right? Right? And the only way to truly relate to that story is insert your story where David's story is at. Some of you might be able to relate firsthand to David's story. But my guess is not a bunch of you can relate to that kind of behavior. But my guess is whether you're online or in here, all of us can relate to the idea of doing sinful things, feeling the conviction of knowing you're wrong right? And dealing with that. Can anybody relate to that? Yes or no, right? We can relate to that story, right? But here's the objective reality of what took place. David slept with Uriah's wife. To cover it up, he brought Uriah home and tried to trick him into sleeping with his wife, even going so far as a king To get this man drunk in hopes that he would sleep with his wife. And yet Uriah was too honorable to his army to do that. Instead, David writes a letter asking, premeditating. Asking Joab to pull the army back so that Uriah can be killed. Basically, he's the one that's planning the murder. That's David's behavior. And here's the objective truth. That when David recognized his sin and said, I have sinned against you, Lord. I have sinned against heaven. The Bible says this, the Lord has passed over your sin. Just like that. Now, I don't know about you, but part of me is a little bit outraged by that. I mean, can you imagine being Uriah's family? I mean, this man did terrible things to their family. Would you agree with that? I mean, we don't know if the sex between Uriah or between David and Bathsheba was consensual, but it's very clear from the text that David used his position as king to get what he wanted. Yes? Now, whether that was consensual on her part because he was king or whether he forced himself on her, here's what we know. She wasn't his to do that with, and yet he did it. And then he had the man killed, and then he covered it up and took his wife To be his own. And God went like this. I'm just going to pass it over. I'm just going to cover it up. I'm just going to let it go. If you're on the side of Uriah and what happened, are you angry with that? Yes or no? Of course you are. Because my guess is some of you in here, some of you online struggle with justice. Wanting justice to be done for people that mess up. Yes? Right, We want justice because those things are wrong. And yet the objective truth is this. God, through David's repentance, said, I've passed over those sins. I've completely forgiven them. That's a pretty hard objective truth. And yet the reality is, I want you to understand how we get there. Because that objective truth is for all of us available in Jesus. Somebody say amen. Right? We sang the song. Wonderful, what a, what a wonderful name it is, right? What a wonderful name it is. I'm not sure we understand at times how wonderful it truly is until we insert our story into David's story. Right? So let's talk about how we get to the subjective truth, right? So you can hear how this all works. Romans 3.23, a verse most of you, if not all of you, are familiar with, right? Read it with me. For All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody online, everybody in here, because the knowledge of good and evil knows this, that there's times that we've known the good to do and we haven't done it, yes or no, right? And we've all known the wrong that we shouldn't do and all of us at times have done it, yes or no. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. Now, if your issue is whether you believe there's a God or not, listen, that's your issue. You're gonna have to work that out with God and God alone. But for those of you that believe in a God, this is the objective reality. None of us have handled the knowledge of good and evil and done it to perfection. We would all agree with that, yes? That's our story. Romans six says the wages, the result, right? What we've earned from that behavior is, come on, say it, it's death, right? Not just physical death, but a death, a separation from God for the wages of sin is death. That's that is your plight and mine as people who have failed in handling the knowledge of good and evil. That falling short thing, we're all in that boat and this boat, we're all in this boat. We all have this issue. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. God has one desire to fix this problem. Somebody say amen. Come on, say amen. Amen. Do you realize that God's desire is to fix this issue? Yes or no? It's this issue alone. Because we sang a song, right? You didn't want heaven without us. Remember that line? Isn't it funny that every time God wants heaven... He comes to us. When God created us, what did he do? He walked in the cool of the garden. He spent time here. When God wanted us again, he sent Jesus here. When we will get a new heaven and a new earth, according to Revelation, it will come where? It will come here. God's desire is for you, for you online. It doesn't matter what your story is, whether it's like David's or not, whether you've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God's desire is to fix this issue so that he can be with you. Somebody say amen. All, listen, all this other stuff is just folderol. It's noise, right? It's decorations for Christmas. It's pretty. It's nice. But it's not the issue. The issue for God is you're a sinner and your sin and my sin puts us in a perilous condition that God has to fix because if there is no fix to this problem God can't be with us in heaven. Do you understand that? Yes or no? That's our condition, right? So how do we get here, right? Listen to Romans 3, right? Is that the next verse? How about how about um Hebrews 2? Listen to this. Since the children have flesh and blood, that's you and me. Jesus shared in their humanity so that by his what? So by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of what? So now we know our death problem is being held, right? By this person, that is the devil. So you sinned. And I sinned. And now we have a death problem. And Jesus came to destroy the guy who held the power of that death. That is who? The devil. He came to destroy it. Because listen to your sin and my sin. We now are in a precarious position. Jesus came to destroy that and to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. Jesus came To set us free. But to do that, he had to destroy the person who had the power of our death. When you sinned, you gave the devil the power of death over you. We were his to claim. Jesus came so that not death would be destroyed first, but he would destroy him who held the power of death. That's the devil. And in so doing, he freed us. For surely it's not angels he helps but Abraham's descendants, you and me, right? And so Romans sums it up this way in Romans 3. And I think Romans three twenty-one through 26 are the most important verses in scripture. For me, they summarize the entirety of what the gospel is. It says now a righteousness, right? A righteousness, a, a, a standard, right? A position of guiltlessness, but a righteousness. From God, apart from the law, meaning there's a way for you and I to be right without being obedient to the law. Anybody interested in that solution? All right. I mean, I don't know about you, but I am. If I can be imperfect and yet still be perfect from God. Are you interested? Yes or no? I am. So he says, apart from the law, there's a way to be righteous. Okay. I'm listening. Right. And that's been made known. To which the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, the Bible says, have been testifying to from the beginning. Don't tell me the Old Testament isn't important. Don't tell me the Old Testament doesn't mean anything to you. Because everything in the Old Testament is pointing to this. Right? You want a better understanding of what this is? Understand what the law and the prophets have been saying to you about it. This righteousness that's apart from the law comes from God and it comes through comes through faith in what in jesus to all who believe that's how we get it right the gospel in its simplest form is this that in spite of my sin and my death issue i can be right with god if i simply put my faith in jesus not in a church not in a work that i do not in a Bible that I read, a translation, not in the songs that we sing, not whether there's a piano or whether there's smoke or no smoke, whether there's pews or chairs, whether the service lasts 40 minutes or an hour and 40 minutes like it's going to tonight. It doesn't matter, right? The reality is this, that our faith has to be in who? Come on, say his name. Jesus, Jesus right? Hitting a home run and giving God glory is not the same thing. Right? Our faith has to be in Jesus to everyone who believes. And here's what he says. There's no difference. It doesn't matter whether you've, whether, whether you're a Jew or a Greek, whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're black or you're white, whether you're rich or you're poor, because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption, that purchase price that came by Jesus. So listen. God, here's the objective truth, God presented Jesus, say it with me, as a sacrifice of atonement, covering, right? A sacrifice of covering through faith in his blood. He did this. Why did God do this? Why did God present Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement or of covering, right? He did it to demonstrate his what? His justice. Because how many have sinned? Come on, how many of you sinned? Let me see it. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us now have earned death. Somebody say amen. And Jesus came to destroy the guy who was holding the paper, right, so you could be set free. And the Bible says God has to enforce justice for your sin. Because all have sinned, fallen short, and the wages of sin is Death. Listen, God has to have justice because he's a just God. Meaning, you broke the law and I broke the law. Just gods punish those who break the law. In our world today, you can buy a judge off, right? You can buy justice. Yes or no? Right? We know that. Do you trust those judges? Yes or no? No. Do you trust the system, right? Do you trust a system that is built to not give justice to all in spite of who they are? Do you trust that system? Yes or no? No, of course you don't. None of us do. Because none of us want to be a part of a justice system that is not equally distributed to all people. And yet with God, it's all equal. It doesn't matter if you're black, white, rich, or poor. It doesn't matter if you're from the South or the North. It does not matter your social economic status. It doesn't matter if you're a male or female. It doesn't matter if you're a teenager or an adult. There's no difference. With God, justice is this. Here's my holy law. You didn't keep it. Now there's punishment. So how did God keep his justice? God did it by letting Jesus be The penalty for your sin. He did it by giving your penalty of death to Jesus. I don't know how many people are in here and how many people are online, but based upon the numbers that we gather every week, my guess is there's going to be close to 400 of you who either watch or listen to this sermon. All 400 of you, all 400 of us, all 4,000, all 400,000, all 4 billion, all 8 billion people in the world can have justice because Jesus' death is sufficient to provide justice for how many people? All of us. All of us. And the Bible says, because in, in, in God's forbearance, he had left the sins committed. Remember what Nathan said to David? God has passed over your sin. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Why? He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who gets to justify those who have faith in Jesus. Why was it so easy? This man cheated. He might have sexually assaulted this woman. He certainly used his power to have sex with her while her husband was at war. And then he lied and then he schemed and then he had Uriah killed. Not an honorable behavior, atrocious behavior, the kind of behavior that if you're Uriah's family or Bathsheba's family, that is a, that is an anger that is hard to let go of. Yes or no? Listen, I don't know about you, but if somebody does something like that to somebody you love, do you want justice? Of course you do. I mean, how many times do we see it play out in the world when some atrocity is heaped upon another individual that a parent or a relative or somebody goes crazy in a courtroom because they want to kill the person? Anybody? Listen, that anger is real. Because in the subjective reality of people's sinful behavior, other people get hurt and there is true, legitimate anger in that situation. God's response to all of that To all of that was one sentence out of the mouth of Nathan that said this, God's passed it over. Time to move on, David. Just that quickly. How was God able to do that so quickly? Because God passed over those sins in the past. Why? Because he was waiting to take care of all of them through Jesus' death on the cross. And all the justice that Uriah family wanted, all the justice that Bathsheba's family wanted, all the justice that Nathan told David was deserved by God for his behavior, all came to pass when Jesus died. That means the best of us who are sinners and the worst of us who are sinners are all, are all paid up because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Does that make sense to you, church? What a wonderful name it is, the name of Jesus. That Jesus, his death was so miraculous and so powerful that it's able to provide you and I, right, you and I, that kind of justification. Right, we said justification means just as if I've never sinned. I hate that description, right? Justification is a legal declaration made by a judge that says your are you you're not guilty. You can go free, right? That's what justification is. There is a mil- listen, anybody in here online, not aware of the evidence that's piled up against you, that you're a sinner. Anybody not aware of that? No, we're all aware of that, right? The Bible says, in spite of that huge mound of, of evidence, you get to go free. Why? Not because you're guilty, but because it's been paid and who paid it? Say it, Jesus, what a wonderful name it is. Amen, church. So for God to look at David, who committed unbelievable acts of dishonor and sin for Nathan to simply say, God's passed it over. Once the repentance came, once the acknowledgement came, God has passed over your sin. Boom, move on. Why? Because Jesus was coming. He was coming. Bring bring that Romans 3 passage back up there in verse 25 and 26, David. Let's focus on this word, right? Because in God's forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did this to demonstrate his justice at the present time to be just and the one who justifies, right? When you go back and you look at the Greek word for passed over, okay? The Greek word there is the Greek word for propitiation. Anybody know what propitiation means? Okay. Here's what it means. It means to be propitious. Does that help? Right? Propitious means to have favor for something to have confidence that this thing's going to work out. Right? So what God did in using this word right? In the Greek to Passover, what it says is that Jesus became the thing that made God gracious to us. It was the thing that made God, uh, favorable to you and me. That's how powerful this thing was because were you guilty of sin? Yes or no? Did, did, were you guilty of sin? Yes or no? Yes, we were guilty. Did we deserve death? Yes or no? Did Satan have the power of that death in his hand? Yes or no? The only way we got set free was somehow God had to be just. He had to have this paid. Jesus became the thing, the propitiation, the very act that made God propitious, that made him favorable to you. That same Greek word is translated mercy seat in scripture as well. Mercy seat. So that got me to thinking, what is the mercy seat? Let me show you a picture of it. Right? We got a couple pictures of it in the Old Testament. Let me just show you what those pictures are. So this is a, a, a rendering from the description in Exodus, right? Of, uh, the ark, right? Of the covenant and the rods that it was carried with. And the top is the top that uncovers, right? And the flat surface of this lid is the mercy seat. Those are the cherubs, the angels, right? The mercy seat is the spot here, right? Here's another picture of it, right? And you get a picture that this is the mercy seat, right? This is the mercy seat. This was a depiction of what this looked like to the Israelites, okay? Gives you a basic idea. Let's read a couple scriptures here because I want you to get this objective reality because we're never going to connect subjectively to this until you understand what's happened to you. Have you sinned? Yes or no? Yes. Did we deserve death? Yes or no? Was Satan holding the power of that death certificate in his hand? Yes or no? It was God's good pleasure, as we read this weekend. It was God's good pleasure to crush him. It was God's pleasure to crush him. Why? So that God could be just in justifying you and me, meaning somebody had to pay the penalty. Which means somebody had to die. And Jesus was that somebody. And he was that somebody for billions and billions of people from the beginning until now. And it was propitious. It was an act that allowed God to be favorable to you. What a wonderful name it is. Amen, church. So look at Exodus 25. Moses says, make an atonement cover for pure gold. This is the cover of the ark, right? In in Exodus 25, he's describing the building of the ark of the covenant, right? Make an atonement for for that ark out of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide, right? And make two cherubim, the angels, out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. Make the cherubim of one piece with the cover, right, at the two ends. So it's all connected. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover with them. So they provided shadow or covering over this lid that was placed on the Ark of the Covenant. The cherubim are to face each other, looking toward the cover, okay? Place the cover on top of the ark and put in the ark the testimony, the tablets that Moses had, which I will give to you, right? There above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony. Now listen to this. This is what happens on the cover. God says, I will meet with you and I will give you all my commands for the Israelites. So that place right that covering is where god was going to meet the israelites you get the significance of that spot right because god couldn't live with unholy people but for god heaven is always coming to be with us somebody say amen so god is there to meet with them there on that spot the mercy seat as it is called Right? Becomes the place where God's presence meets the Israelites. But how do they interact with it when they're sinful people? Leviticus describes this in Leviticus 16. All right? Now I know this is a lot. Okay? All the verses that I have are online on the YouVersion app. Right? Just go to Tomoka. They're all listed there. Right? For your study. I know there's, this is a lot. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place. So Moses can't just go, hey, I just want to go hang out with God, right? He just can't show up and do it whenever you want to. Isn't it amazing that we live in a world today where we just get to call on God directly, right? Moses wasn't, or Aaron wasn't even allowed to come, right? He wasn't allowed to come to that. placed behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark. So where that cover is at, that atonement, right, translated mercy seat, right, for the front of the cover on the ark or else he will die because I appear in the cloud over this atonement cover. So God's presence is over the mercy seat and he can't just walk in willy dilly into my presence, right, or he will what? He'll die because the wages of sin is death, right? Now, it goes on in Leviticus in in verse 11, and it says this, Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. And he is to slaughter this bull for his own sin offering. Listen to this. He's to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and take them behind this curtain where the Ark of the Covenant sits, the most holy place for the Holy of Holies in the temple, right? When he's in there, he's to put the incense on the fire before the Lord. That's the fire that, that Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, profaned by offering God a, a an unholy fire. And they died because of it. He says, put that incense on that fire before the Lord and the smoke of that incense will conceal the atonement cover that is above the testimony or the tablets so that Aaron won't die. So now he's in the room in front of the ark and here's the covering, the atonement. God is there in a cloud and he is instructed, slaughter this bull for your sin offering. But before you do anything with it, you bring a censer in full of these ashes, right? And you place that on the fire so that the smoke in this holy of holies will protect you so that you will not die. Pretty intricate, right? He says, he's to take some of the bull's blood with his finger and sprinkle it on the front of the mercy seat or the atonement cover. Then he shall sprinkle some of that with his finger Seven times before the mercy seat. He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do what? And do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of it. In this way, he will make atonement. Right for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and the rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. He is to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. So the Ark of the Covenant set behind a curtain and on that Ark was one piece of gold. And it was crafted to be a lid with two cherub facing each other with their wings covering this cover. And it's in that spot that God's presence would come to be with Israel. And only the high priest, and only once a year on Yom Kippur, was he allowed to go in. And the first thing he had to do was put the incense on the fire so that he wouldn't die. The second thing he did was sprinkled blood on the cover for his sin and then sprinkled the blood of the goat on the cover for the sins of the people. But where did the blood go? The blood went on the what? The mercy seat. It went to that place. It went to the covering, which is why an atonement is a cover to get The the scenario, because listen to Romans 3.21 again, because I want you to see this parallel. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known. There's a way to be right with God, even though you're not perfect. To which the law and the prophets testify. The Old Testament has been screaming about it from the beginning. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus to all who believe. And there's no difference for a call of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. But how did it work? Right, we're justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came through Christ Jesus. Okay, great. We know it's Jesus, but how did it work? God presented Jesus, right? As they say it with me, a sacrifice of of atonement, which means covering, of covering. So back in the Old Testament, the blood had to be sprinkled on the covering, the mercy seat, because God hovered above it. So for Aaron, to have access to God, he needed his sins, what? Covered. He had to have them covered. Because without his sins being covered, could he approach God? Yes or no? No. Because if he approached God with his sins uncovered, he would have what? He would have died. So the mercy seat was hugely significant in that it provided a place for blood to be laid so that you and I, or so that Aaron would have a covering, and in that covering, he could make an atonement for the people of Israel. God presented Jesus to be a sacrifice of covering for us. Meaning Jesus has become our what? He's become our mercy seat. He has become the thing that allows you and allows me to have direct access to God. What a wonderful name it is, right? It's no wonder his name is above every name because just the way it worked in the old Testament is the way it works for us. The difference is it's not a blood of bull or goat that makes the atonement cover accessible. It's Jesus himself. Cause not only is he the high priest who's offering the sacrifice and not only is he the sacrifice that the high priest is offering, he's also the mercy seat onto which the high priest offers the blood. What a wonderful name it is. He's the high priest, he's the sacrifice, and he's the mercy seat. No wonder his name is above every name. And no wonder through Jesus, David could hear from Nathan, your sins have been passed over because God was simply waiting for this. Listen to scripture, right? 1 John 1, 9 says this, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Somebody say amen to that, right? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and he will what? Come on, he will forgive us. Say forgive us. He will forgive us and he will cleanse us from unrighteousness, right? If we claim we haven't sinned, right? We make God out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives, right? My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, Anybody, does that fit? If anybody does sin, come on, if that's you, raise your hand, right? If anybody does sin, right? If anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, our advocate, our legal counsel. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Now read this next verse with me. He is the atoning sacrifice. He is the mercy seat. He is the covering for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the what? And Nathan said to David, God has passed over your sin. Why? Because in Jesus, God can forgive the sins of how many people? The whole world. What a wonderful name it is. Amen, church. How about this one? First John chapter four, verse 10 says, this is love. Not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his son as a, what? Atoning sacrifice for our sins. He was sent to be our covering, to be our mercy seat. The place where sin has to be covered so you and I can have access to God. You and I get to call God, Abba, Daddy. Daddy. We get to call him our father. We get to call to him as our dad. Why? Because there's an atonement. There's a covering. There's a mercy seat that's covered in the blood, not of a bull and not of a goat, but in the blood of Jesus Christ, the righteous. What a powerful name it is. Amen, church. The name of Jesus. How about this one? Hebrews 2.17. For this reason, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every way, our verse, right? In order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, right? That he might make what? Atonement, covering. That he might be our mercy seat for the sins of the people, How about Hebrews chapter 8, 10 through 13? This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I'm going to put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know from me. From the least of them to the greatest, for I will, listen to this, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins Come on, remember their sins no more. He says, by calling this covenant new, he's made the first one obsolete. Which one? The one that had an ark. The one that had a cover. The one that had a mercy seat. The one required bulls and goats' blood. The one that required incense on the fire. Right? He says, by calling this covenant new, he's made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. Hebrews chapter 10 says this. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ. Say it with me. Once. Objective truth, yes or no? You see, because here's the thing. Every person in this room and every person watching online is going to sin and need to repent at some point in time after knowing Jesus. Yes or no? And here's the thing. If you don't understand the objective reality. That you're living in. This objective reality will destroy you. Because the only way. Listen the only way for me as a parent. To survive the objective reality. That my kids have to grow up. And leave home and start a life. That might be a thousand miles away. Is for me to understand. The objective reality is my job. Was to raise them to be an adult. Now it doesn't make it always go away. But it does make it easier. When my daughter FaceTimes me today and says, hey, I've got good news. And her good news is is that she's working more. I can't help but feel happy about that. Right? Because this is a 20-year-old girl who's decided that it's her responsibility when class is in the first week of December to work a little bit more so that dad doesn't have to pay her rent. Objectively, that reality hits home to me that that was my job. But subjectively, while I'm watching her on FaceTime, I'm realizing I don't know how long it's going to be until I see her again, and that causes me to struggle. But the objective reality makes it more plausible for me. For so many of us in here and online, when sin hits us, and listen, it's going to, because we have two natures, a sin nature and a holy nature through God's Spirit. We're going to fight with that nature and fail at times. Somebody say that's true. What do you do when sin hits? What do you do when you're in David's position and you're living in this sin? If you don't know the objective reality, subjective reality will keep you away longer and longer and longer and longer. And the objective reality is this. That for God to be okay with you, Satan had to be destroyed because he held the power of your demise. Jesus came to destroy him. Who held that power. And in so doing. He became our mercy seat. He became our covering. So that my access to God. Is completely free. Free of my sin. Free of my shame. Free of my guilt. Because Jesus became an atoning sacrifice. He became the propitiation. He became the thing that made God propitious toward me. Made him favorable toward me. Is anybody in here grateful for Jesus? Let me hear you say amen. Right? Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take those sins away. Because every year on Yom Kippur, every year the priest had to go through this process for the sins of himself and his people. Right? But when this priest had offered, when this priest, which priest? Jesus had offered for all time. Say it with me. One. Everybody say one one sacrifice for sins he sat down at the right hand of god and since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool right because by one sacrifice he has made perfect say those with me perfect now say it again perfect listen online and here how many of you know jesus as your lord and savior say amen Do you realize the objective truth is that that one sacrifice that you accepted made you perfect forever? Listen, I think there's so many Christian people that just don't understand it. They've accepted Jesus. They've been told that Jesus saves, but I'm not sure they understand how it works. That sacrifice provided justice for a just God for the sins of the whole world. What a wonderful name it is. Jesus did that and he made perfect forever, those who are being made holy, those who are being set apart. The Holy Spirit testifies to to us about this. First, he says what? This is the covenant I will make with them after the time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their heart. We just read this right. And I will write them on their minds. Then he adds their sins and their lawless acts. I will remember, say it with me, no more. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for them. You don't need another one. You don't need another sacrifice for God to be right with you. Why? Because Jesus is our covering. He's our mercy seat. He's the thing that provides all of that for us. And Hebrews ten twenty one through 28 says this. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let's draw near to God with a sincere heart in what? Full assurance of faith. See, here's the thing about objective reality. It's designed to provide you a full assurance of faith. How many of you have sensed that you've come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Okay. And the reality is this, that the struggle down here subjectively to deal with that sin can be unbelievably complicated. Because listen, some of the sins we've committed have hurt a lot of people. They've been destructive beyond nature. They've hurt our families. They've hurt our children. They've hurt people we go to church with. They've hurt tons of people. They've cost you your job. They've cost you your marriage. They've cost you you, name it. They have been unbelievably destructive. And so living out down here in this subjective reality is hard. But I'm telling you without the objective knowledge of the truth of how this works, people Will never make their way back. And the Bible says we should draw near to God with a sincere heart. Full in the assurance of our faith. Our faith in who? Jesus Christ. Because why? Through one sacrifice. He has made forever perfect. Those who are being set apart for him. Somebody say amen. Now, he says We've had our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let's hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. It's hope because you're still here. And I'm still here. And those of you online are still here. And guess what? We haven't, we haven't received our full salvation yet. We haven't received redemption yet. So we're still living here. You and I should bet, listen, you better hold on unswervingly to your hope. And here's the thing, the more sins you commit knowing Jesus, the stronger you better hold on to that. Because the devil's gonna try to convince you to let it go because he's gonna tell you that sin, that sacrifice didn't work for you. If it did, you wouldn't be doing this stupid stuff. And I look at the church that I serve and I know that we're all stupid and do stupid things. Amen. Listen, what we all need is to hold on to that hope that we profess for he who promised is what? He's faithful. He's faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward what? Love and good deeds. Right. Let's not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. But let's encourage one another and do it all the more as we see the day approaching. We all need Jesus and we all need each other in this. Because here's the thing. There's not a person online or a person here that cannot relate to David's behavior. We may not relate directly to it because we may not have done the specific things he's done. But there's not a person in here or a person online that hasn't at times, after knowing Jesus, come to this reality that I've said. And what do you do? How do you live here? And how do you process that? you got to know the objective reality. The only way for me to cope with the fact that my kids have moved away and that my kids up north come maybe once a year to see me. That's 364 days of the year. I can only see them through FaceTime. The only way for me to cope with that in the, in the subjective world of my emotions is to have the objective reality that my job was to raise fully functioning, healthy adults. Does it take it away? No. And as we're going to learn next week, listen, the objective reality didn't take away David's struggle, but it made it possible. For it to be short-lived. And it made it possible for him to move through it quickly. And my guess is some of you in here and some of you watching online have not moved past your sin quickly. You're stuck. My hope is that understanding the objective reality of what Jesus actually did. He is your mercy seat. He has sacrificed, made God favorable towards you. And now it's covered. And it only took one sacrifice. And it lasts forever. And it's for the whole stinking world. Somebody say amen. Amen. So Father, today my prayer is that you would make us mindful of your truth. And the truth is, is that we needed to be freed from our debt. And more importantly, we needed to be freed from the one who had the power of that debt. Because Satan wasn't going to release it. Satan was going to cash it in. And he was going to hold all of us to that payment. I'm so grateful God that your plan was so full of love and so full of grace that you were willing to send Jesus and not just send him, but according to Isaiah, that you would be pleased to crush him for our benefit. And now father, make us know, make us know your truth that when Jesus was crushed for our iniquities, he became the propitiation, the atonement cover, the mercy seat that allows me to have direct access to you, and that that sacrifice only had to be made once, and it's made us forever perfect as we continue to follow you and to trust you in our lives. Father, plant that truth in our hearts and write it in our minds so that as we live down here in this mess, we can get through it quicker and we can hold on to our hope unswervingly. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, church.